NPR has a new international podcast. It's called Rough Translations. Each week, they're going to another country to hear a story that reflects back on something we're talking about here in the U.S. Yes, and for their first episode, they're talking about race and Mm. a new law in Brazil that gives more government jobs to black Brazilians. But the catch is... Anyone who wants these jobs has to prove to a panel of judges that he or she qualifies as black. What? Mm. How, do, how do you prove that, that you're black? DNA test? <laughs> I see what I you mean, did you there. just did it. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Anyway, you got to listen to the podcast. All right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Rough Translations is on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Friday night, August 11th at the University of Virginia. Dozens of white supremacists march onto the campus founded by Thomas Jefferson, wielding torches. The very next morning in Charlottesville, not far from UVA, even more white supremacists. They're gathered for a rally called Unite the Right. The stated aim of the march? Stop a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from being taken down by the city. Fights break out with protesters demonstrating against them. That same afternoon, a car plows into a crowd of those people demonstrating against the white supremacists there. just ran down all of these people. Nineteen people are injured. One woman is killed. A man with reported white nationalist ties is arrested and charged with driving the car in that attack. That evening, the president weighs in. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. Monday, after widespread criticism that he didn't go far enough in his condemnation of white nationalists at the rallies, Trump more explicitly rebukes the KKK and neo-Nazis, calling them repugnant and saying, quote, racism is evil. But the next day, Tuesday, Trump doubles back. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And on this episode, we're talking about what happened in Charlottesville. You know the basics, but we're going to dig deeper. We'll give you some history with a scholar who's written a book about the politics of white resentment. And we'll talk to a Republican strategist who says the president's response hurt his party. But first, we're here with our Code Switch teammate, Adrian Florido. Adrian just got back from Charlottesville. He headed down there to see how the people there were trying to reckon with what just happened. Hey, too. Hey, Adrian. Now, one of the things you noticed was that a lot of the counter-protesters, a lot of the people who came out to oppose these white nationalists in Charlottesville, they were white. Yeah, a large majority, in fact, uh, which probably isn't too surprising because Charlottesville is a a mostly white town. Mm -hmm. But It is kind of one of the interesting things that's come out of this weekend, right? You've got all these white people now wrestling with the reality that all these people came to their town to spew hate under this banner of whiteness. So if you're white and you don't agree with that, well, what responsibility do you feel? All right, man. Take us to Charlottesville. So the morning after the attack, I went to City Hall. Jason Kessler, the white nationalist who'd organized that so-called Unite the Right rally, had planned a press conference out front. And there was this huge semicircle of journalists facing the lectern. But when Kessler came out, he was met by this avalanche of boos and chants of shame on you, shame on you. This was coming from all of the people who had packed in behind the journalists. And for a good five minutes, Kessler was trying to speak, but he was just being drowned out. It really is a sad day in our constitutional democracy when we are not able to have civil liberties like the First Amendment. 
And so at one point, this man pushed his way through the journalists and confronted Kessler, and he took a swing at him. And that just sort of worked everyone up. Suddenly you had these camera guys getting closer and these protesters pushing their way through, and they were all furious. And, you know, they were mostly white people. And they basically chased Kessler off from his own press conference until he had to take safety behind a line of police officers. So after this scene sort of settled down, I spoke to one of the protesters, Kate Fraley. Yeah, so I think that the people of color in town need white folks to stand up to the, to the powers that be because we don't get arrested. And they do. So I think we uh, owe it to the people of color in this community to be on the forefront of this argument because it's white supremacy that's making the problem. And we are white and we need to fix it. This is an idea I heard over and over from white folks I spoke with in the last couple of days. This disgust that such an explicit form of racist white supremacy had reared its head here in progressive Charlottesville. It's a good town. What, what happened yesterday is just, it's unreal. I can't believe it happened. This is out of something from a different century. I wish I could be black just to feel for one day what it feels like to be in Charlottesville for one day. That was Keith Patterson, Mary Goodrich, and Nina Knight. These folks, like so many I spoke with, felt a sense of responsibility to do something. Caroline Laco went to the Kessler press conference and was holding a sign. What does your sign say? It says Nazis go home. Her husband's sign said just leave. When you turn on the news and you see all these stories from around the world saying this horrible violence in Charlottesville, all these racists attacking people, this is not what Charlottesville is. Charlottesville is about inclusiveness and trying to help each other. This feeling that it is an inclusive place is so strongly held in this liberal college town that the attack over the weekend felt like a harsh reality check. I think people are ashamed. Laura Goldblatt is a community organizer and a researcher at the University of Virginia. Charlottesville has a has a lot of um, farmers, has a lot of farming communities, and people who come from a long blue-collar history. And I think the fact that someone was killed when she was trying to put a stop to hate and racism makes them feel ashamed about the ways that that history is celebrated. Though Charlottesville today is a largely liberal town, It's also a kind of sprawling monument to Thomas Jefferson, who founded the University of Virginia, and whose slave plantation, Monticello, sits on a hill overlooking the city. In 1921, hood-wearing Klan members inaugurated their local chapter with a midnight ceremony at Jefferson's tomb. Over the next several years, the city erected several Confederate monuments, including the one to Robert E. Lee that the white nationalists were trying to defend last weekend. And at the time that they were put up, members of the Klan rallied around them during their dedication. There was a lot of celebration and fanfare. And so the statues and Thomas Jefferson are all kind of part of this ecosystem of a long history of white supremacy in this area. And the statues are a symbolic representation of that. So Goldblatt says it's no surprise that as Charlottesville has taken steps to take these statues down, the Klan and other white nationalists would come here to try to reclaim a past they feel is slipping away. On Sunday, dozens of people gathered at the downtown intersection where police say James Alex Fields rammed his car into the crowd. The mourners were remembering Heather Heyer, who was killed. Among them was Carol Carruthers Sims, the pastor of a nearby Episcopal church. And it's an all-white church, and um, I, the subject of 
race has just begun to come up there in discussions. Sims has lived in Charlottesville for most of her 79 years. And she says for all the talk about being inclusive, the reality in Charlottesville is more complicated. I think a lot of people, myself included, you're not in contact with the African Americans or the other groups. You're sort of off in your own white, you know, barricade, so to speak. So I think a lot of people just aren't aware and they have up they go on with their life. But she says there is tension beneath the surface. There's a lot of racism in people's minds and um, I think, you know, we can be pleasant. Hello, how are you? But I think underneath here in Charlottesville, there's still some prejudice there. Also at this vigil was a man named Derek. He asked me to use only his first name. Derek is black, a Charlottesville resident. As he looked at the crowd, he said he had mixed feelings. It's kind of hard to explain. Um, a lot of the people that you see here, they, uh, they're here for the right reasons, but a lot of them don't really understand the perspective of let's say, uh, a person of color, uh, how they uh, view um, the police department, uh, how they view things like um, access to housing, uh, basically being pulled over for no good reason. So while he said it was great to see so many people coming out to denounce white nationalists. This is easy because it's something that everyone's for. But once this goes away, how we deal with all the race issues is going to be what really matters in the long run. Laura Goldblatt, the organizer and UVA researcher, agrees with him. She brings up a lot of the same issues that Derek did. Advocates have been pushing the city to improve affordable housing and to address concerns over police stops. Last year, a local paper found that nearly 80 percent of people pulled over by Charlottesville police were black. Only 20 percent of the town's population is black. The city is also still dealing with the fallout of its decision in the 50s to close white schools for months rather than integrate them. The next decade, it tore down black homes and businesses. Here's Goldblatt. It's in some ways feels almost um, so obvious that you should resist something like what we saw on Saturday. But now we need to move into some of the nuts and bolts and the things that make us say, this was so ugly, but we actually have a lot of really ugly policies here. Goldblatt said those policies are what she hopes Charlottesville residents unite behind next. That was our teammate Adrian Florido. After the break, we've got some history for you, and we talk to a reporter who lives in Charlottesville and covers the Trump administration. He tells us about its ties to white nationalists. And we talk to a Republican strategist who says Trump's response to the incident in Charlottesville could deal a major blow to his party's efforts to become more inclusive. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients come paired with an easy-to-follow recipe card, delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free with your first order, plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash codeswitch. Support also comes from ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is committed to helping employers build great companies by making it easy to find and hire top talent. Using advanced matching technology, ZipRecruiter actively connects employers with qualified candidates in any city or industry nationwide. In fact, 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. 
Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash switch. We're joined now by Carol Anderson and Jamel Bowie. Carol Anderson is a professor of African-American history at Emory University and the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. She's in Atlanta. Jamel Bowie is the chief political correspondent for Slate. He's a graduate of the University of Virginia, and he lives in Charlottesville. But right now, he's joining us from Martha's Vineyard. Carol, Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having us. Can you both please share your initial reaction to all this? I was not surprised at the fact that there were fights and clashes and skirmishes between the protesters. And, I mean, the interesting thing about living there is that everyone knew the rally was happening. So you could even feel in the air as it approached the kind of nervousness about the potential for violence. Um, And I'll add as well that there is a a rally uh, from the Klan in July. And even though there were only about 50 Klansmen and and they were dwarfed by the number of demonstrators, even then you could sort of sense like the potential for violence if there were any more Klansmen there. But I was uh, shocked by the use of a car to attack protesters, counter-demonstrators. And I was, to a degree, still am a bit shell-shocked by the fact that someone was killed. Unfortunately, I wasn't surprised by the violence because white supremacy requires violence. What I was absolutely heartened by were the group of students from UVA who, although surrounded by torch-bearing white supremacists, hollering at them, stood tall and stood firm. And all of those who came out and protested um, because they want the America that is the one we talk about, the one we aspire to be, not this this devolving mess that um, has has always been broiling underneath. But Trump really brought it out. There's been lots of blame piled up onto the Trump White House for stirring up racial tension. And longtime Republican and former George W. Bush ethics lawyer Richard Painter said Trump should fire counterterrorism advisor Sebastian Gorka, who allegedly has ties to a Nazi allied group in Hungary, and Steve Bannon, his chief advisor who ran Breitbart, a favorite news source for the alt-right, if that's what we're calling them. Painter compared what happened in Charlottesville to Germany in the 30s. He called Gorka and Bannon neo-fascists. Jamel, this has definitely been a major theme in your reporting on the Trump administration. I was wondering if you could talk more specifically about these alleged ties to white nationalism. Bannon's ties, I think, are actually very clear and concrete. It's not just that Bannon uh, bragged that he had made Breitbart into kind of a gathering place for the, quote, Mm alt-right, but that if you read Breitbart under the AGS of Bannon, what you saw was its most prominent writer, Milo Yiannopoulos, basically being a racist, sexist, sort of public figure on behalf of the alt-right. Breitbart at this time had a section on the website dedicated to, quote, black crime. Wow. Yeah, I know. Breitbart would routinely run articles with headlines sort of warning readers of a menace of Muslim refugee rapists. This was the kind of milieu of Breitbart in the Bannon years. And it did cultivate an audience uh, that 
was disproportionately made up of white supremacists and anti-Semites and, and run-of-the-mill racists. Sebastian Gorka is a member of a, a Hungarian nationalist group that is said to have been sort of linked to the Nazi party in the 1940s. And Gorka does wear the uniform of this group and does wear a pin associated with this group. Even if you want to ignore that and say that it's sort of like misguided nostalgia or something, his sort of claim to fame within the Trump administration is he's supposed to be a counterterrorism expert, but his expertise seems to amount to demagoguing Muslims and Muslim Americans and demagoguing Islam, um, which puts him again in close contact with the kinds of people Bannon was around to. And if you want to, you can add people to this, right? So Stephen Miller, the White House advisor who did work on a travel ban and is working on administration immigration policy was a mentee of Richard Spencer while at Duke. Richard Spencer, by the way, is the white nationalist who actually coined the term alt-right, or says he coined the term alt-right. Right, and Richard Spencer is one of the organizers of the Unite the Right march in Charlottesville. You have Bannon, you have Gorka, you have Miller. I think the characterization that they are part of this stew is fair and accurate. But Carol, do we have to reach as far back as Germany in the 1930s to find American examples of what, like, we saw in Charlottesville? I mean, oh, no, not at all. I thought of the the images coming out of Charlottesville this weekend, and it reminded me of Little Rock in 1957 when nine Black honor students uh, went to integrate Central High uh, three years after the Brown decision, and um, the mob came out in force to stop nine Black children from getting an education. The other thing that struck me and gave me a sense of Birmingham during the Freedom Rides, which is when African-Americans and whites were riding interstate buses, when they got to Birmingham and they stepped off of the bus, they looked around and then whites attacked, just started beating, or when I think about Birmingham, blowing up. There are these these light motifs that keep echoing through in America. And so we call them Nazis. And the reason why it's easy to say Nazis is because we don't feel complicit in that evil. That makes it much so much harder than when we talk about these folks who love the Confederacy. And so we've we've gone to calling them Nazis or to strip the reality of who they are out of that language by calling them alt-right when what we really mean are white supremacists. Can you talk about what you think white nationalists expect to accomplish in 2017? All the demographic trends show that the U.S. isn't going to revert back into a majority white country. So, like, what's the goal here? To me, what they want to accomplish, I mean, and you heard it from David Duke when he said that here in Charlottesville, you know, we're filling Trump's promise. Um, when he talked about make America great again, what they really meant was make America white again. And then I'm putting an asterisk by that because what that really means is to create a society where the resources of this society funnel in to a a whites-only space, but that it is propped up and supported by a vast labor pool without rights. 
This is why you're seeing those policies coming out of Jeff Sessions' Department of Justice and coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. All of this is to basically criminalize the black and brown populations in the United States to a point where they can provide the labor that can create and sustain a very comfortable lifestyle for whites. So these policies are being enacted by the White House. Um, They're being pushed by the Justice Department. But what role do white nationalists play in feeding and aiding those goals? Oh, they are absolutely essential to it. When Trump began his campaign saying that Mexicans are rapists and criminals, he was sending the signal to those white nationalists that it was now their day, that they could begin to act and to say the things that they felt had been forbidden for so long because of the change in the norms brought about by the civil rights movement. They also serve the purpose of distancing people from the everyday, more policy-based instances of, of racism and racial discrimination. So, you know, in the wake of Charlottesville, you've seen Republican office holders accepting the president, condemn the white supremacists in Charlottesville, condemn the violence, explicitly label the white supremacists as white supremacists. But these lawmakers who did this, whether it's Orrin Hatch or of Utah or Marco Rubio of Florida or Cory Gardner of Colorado, none of them have spoken up against voter suppression regimes in Republican states. And what the white nationalists sort of do is they provide a way for more mainstream figures to say, well, we're not them, therefore we reject racism, and then kind of quietly accept a policy regime that uh, entrenches racial inequality, that effectively denies the rights of citizenship to, to millions of Americans. It doesn't just obscure that that latter part, but it also enables them to kind of act affronted when you say, well, hey, this stuff you're doing or supporting is directly harming non-white Americans. Right. This is not racism. That over there, that sort of frothing at the mouth, right. that's, that's the racism. real racism. Right. right. Which is Jamel's nickname on Twitter, <laughs> by the way. The real racist. Right. You know, and that's part of what also is getting... I would say missed in this focus on Trump. He stepped into something where the ground has already been tilled for him for decades. And that was the Southern strategy. That was Nixon talking about law and order and defining criminals as black. This is Ronald Reagan launching his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in Neshoba County, which is the site where Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, um, three civil rights workers in the early 1960s, were killed by sheriffs and the Klansmen with the help of the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission. This is where he Reagan launches his campaign saying, I'm a firm believer in states' rights. What Trump stepped into, Republicans had been tilling that ground for a long time. And even think about how you had Mitt Romney in 2012 seeking Donald Trump's birther support for the presidential nomination. <laughs> You know, the Republicans are going to have to own this and they're going to have to begin to think through what they have done by inviting this toxin of racism into their party. So, Jamel, you're traveling for work right now. Um, How are you feeling about going back home to Charlottesville? 
better about it than you might think. And that is because despite the fact that apparently the city is now kind of a, a, a stop on the annual white supremacist tour, <laughs> what we also saw on Saturday was a community really coming together to try to defend itself, defend its own, and stand up for the values it espouses and begin to try to live up to those values. So everyone from uh, local political leaders to the owner of a really good barbecue joint took a stand. And so I'm happy to return to a community where there is both room, a lot of room to make things better. Um, and, and and so I'm not, I'm not feeling too bad about it, even as this new reality about what Charlottesville now means in the public mind uh, is emerging. That was Jamel Bowie. He's the chief political correspondent at Slate. He was joined by Carol Anderson of Emory University. She's a historian. She's the author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. And to see how Republicans are reckoning with their party leader's response to what went down in Charlottesville, Gene, you spoke with Alex Conant. He was Senator Marco Rubio's communications director during Rubio's White House bid in 2016. And he sat down to do this interview just hours before President Trump went back on national television to defend his initial response to the Charlottesville incident. He said there's, quote, blame on both sides. Alex, welcome to Code Switch. Thanks for having me. So what was your initial reaction to the Charlottesville incident? I think like most Americans, I was horrified by what I saw, which was clearly a terrorist attack on counter-protesters and on people that were there to decry racism. So, it was, yeah, it was, it was a horrible thing to see. Where were you watching from? I was actually on an airplane. I was, I'd been in California, so I was flying back and sort of saw it all unfold from 30,000 feet. So in a story that ran in some McClatchy papers, you were quoted as saying, quote, Republicans have no tolerance for white supremacists and have no patience for Republican leaders who aren't quick to condemn that. Then you went on, there is real concern that the way they've handled this has the potential to deliver real damage to the Republican Party long term. So what do you mean by the potential to deliver real damage? Well, look, I think the Republican Party is obviously not a majority party. It's, I think if, in most polls, you have anywhere from 25 to 30 percent of Americans who identify as Republicans. Uh, and so in order to win elections, we need to earn the support of independents and even some Democrats to, to win elections. And I think if independents think that Republicans have any sort of tolerance for the sort of racism we saw on Saturday – it makes it a lot harder to earn their support. And in fact, I think you'll see Republicans inside the party not want to be associated with those views and leave the party. So that's why it could become a long-term threat for the party. So how does the Republican Party become more inclusive going forward? Well, I think you saw a lot of good statements over the weekend from Republican leaders, be it Cory Gardner, my former boss, Marco Rubio, uh, you know, very articulate in calling uh, the racism for what it was and calling on President Trump to more forcefully denounce it. During the election last year, a lot of people saw President Trump's or then candidate Trump's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, as a code, as, as a dog whistle, if not a bullhorn. They understood the slogan to really mean make America white again. Is that what you heard when you heard that slogan? It's not what I heard. Uh, so my experience with the 2016 presidential election, obviously I worked on Marco Rubio's campaign. So I worked really hard to try to stop Donald Trump from uh, winning the Republican nomination. And I spent a lot of time in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Florida, during the primaries, uh, talking with Republican primary voters, many of whom ended up supporting Donald Trump. And I don't think they supported Donald Trump because they're racist or because they heard a dog whistle in his messaging. 
I think they supported Donald Trump because of the populist themes of his campaign. And the anti-Washington sentiment that he represented really struck a chord with a lot of Republican primary voters. So what do you think about the disconnect between the way Republican primary voters understood that slogan and the way that so many voters of color understood that slogan? Yeah, I mean, look, I can't really speak to that other than to say, you know, I don't think that Republicans nominated Donald Trump because of race. I think they nominated Donald Trump because he was anti-Washington and angry in the same way that a lot of Republican primary voters were. And I think to the extent that there were voters who thought that Trump harbored racist views, it's incumbent on him to disavow that. And you you saw him do it some during the election last year. I personally wish he had done it more and more forcefully. Just like this weekend, I think he should have spoken out more forcefully and a lot faster than he did. Let me ask you, you're a comms guy. Mm -hmm. How would you have handled this response on Saturday to the incident in Charlottesville? Look, in times of national crisis, it's an opportunity for the president. In fact, it would have frankly helped his political standing at a time where we've seen his poll numbers really go down a lot over the last couple of weeks. So why do you think he didn't do that? I try hard not to get in Donald Trump's head, uh, uh, mostly because he he constantly proves me wrong. My best guess would be that he doesn't want to be seen as bowing to what a lot of mainstream media called on him to do. Hmm. So white nationalists make for convenient villains, right? I mean, they're really easy to condemn, which is why the president's decision. Well, they they are villains. Right, of course. (laughs) Yeah. But part of the reason President Trump came in for so much criticism Um, was because he decided not to. But, you know, the Republican Party um, has been criticized for a long time, long before President Trump, of trafficking and rhetoric and pushing policies that capitalize on white resentment, voter ID laws, tough on crime laws. I wonder what you make of that criticism. Well, I think think the criticism is unfortunate. Uh, Again— You don't think it's valid? I've never, I've worked for a lot of Republicans. Uh, I've been in a lot of Republican meetings, attended a lot of Republican conventions and conferences, and have never heard any sort of racist sentiment at all. And to the opposite of that, I think most Republicans, certainly most Republicans that I've interacted with over the last 15 years that I've been working in professional Republican politics, bemoan the fact that we underperform with minority voters. And if you look at you know, the people that I've worked for, people like Marco Rubio, they put a real emphasis on trying to go out and earn votes from minority communities. So why do you think that they're having such a hard time making those inroads? I mean, according to Gallup, about 90 percent of the Republican voters are white today. Well, obviously, episodes like this weekend do not help with the Republican brand. And you read a quote that I gave McClatchy earlier where it said this threatens to be a long-term problem for the party. Clearly, we need to do better. We want to do better with African-American voters. And episodes like this weekend are a setback. Do you think the whiteness of the Republican Party is an existential problem for the party? Long-term, if you look at the demographics, I do believe it's it's a problem for the party. I mean, white America is shrinking. We can't just assume that we can win national elections by winning white votes. And so, yeah, we absolutely do need to go out and do better in minority communities. Alex Conant was the Republican National Committee's national press secretary during 2008. He was also the comms director for Senator Marco Rubio's campaign last year. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. 
Check out the Code Switch blog for more on this story. Our colleague Leah Danella did a deep dive and had some presumably uncomfortable conversations with some of the intellectual architects hmm. of the contemporary white nationalist movement here in the U.S., so look out for that. That's our show. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. You can email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Walter Ray Watson, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Aleli Mae Vuelta, and I produced this episode. We had original music by Ramteen Arablui. A shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Kat Chow, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, and Karen Grigsby-Bates. This episode was edited by Sammy Yenigan and Steve Drummond. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Maraji. Seriously, y'all. Be easy. That's it for us. But if you want to hear more, our friend Sam Sanders also dove deep. He talked it out with white folks and their views on Charlottesville. Check it out on his podcast, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, which is available on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.